morning, everyone. Um, reading this morning is from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. Do you want to get your phones or Bibles out for old school? When you turn to your passage in the Bible, let's be reminded that when we read the Bible, we are reading the living Word of God. God reveals himself primarily through Scripture, and so the Bible shapes and guides everything we do as God's people. So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday we started a new series in the book of Revelation, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. And this is really, um, Jesus, uh, at the start of the book of Revelation, writes letters to seven churches. Um, these are seven churches. If we, can we have the map up there, Ethan? This is where I do need a laser pointer. Um, John is uh, on this little island of Patmos, and he gets this vision. Uh, God gives him this vision of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and that is the book that we have, the book of Revelation. And in that book, he starts with Jesus writing these letters to each of these seven churches. So last week, uh, we saw the letter to, to Ephesus, which was the first one. And it kind of the reason, that, the reason they're listed in this order is that that's the way the postman, the, I guess the first century equivalent of a postman, would have went from Ephesus to Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, then Laodicea. And, and so today, we go 35 miles north uh, to Smyrna. This is kind of one of the reasons I wanted to pray for the guys in Turkey this morning is because uh, this is Turkey. These, these churches, these Christians are where uh, we have actual friends and brothers and sisters in modern-day Turkey. Um, so that's one of the reasons I wanted to pray for them specifically this morning. Um, and we see that in each of these letters, uh, Jesus follows the same structure. We saw this last week. So every week, including the next two Sundays when uh, we're doing a joint gathering, we're going to see the same structure. Every sermon is going to be the same. So by the end of the, the summer, you're going to have a really good uh, idea of how these things work. So firstly, he starts with an introduction. Jesus always introduces himself. And he gives us this authoritative introduction, right? And it's just showing who he is. He's like, I am Jesus. Here's something about me. I have authority. And you need to listen to what I'm saying. Basically, that's what he said. And then he, has this, he gives him this evaluation, this all-known evaluation, right? So in, in Revelation chapter 1, there's this vision of Jesus, and it shows Jesus with these, these eyes like flames of fire. And that's symbolic of the, his kind of all-knowing gaze, right? He can see into every nook and cranny. He knows his churches, and he evaluates them. And then he either gives them like a, a criticism and a commendation, sometimes one or the other, sometimes both. Like today, we're going to see it's just one of those things. And then he gives them an exhortation. An appropriate exhortation based on his evaluation. So an, an exhortation just means a, a, a call to do something, like it's an urge to do something. So I've seen this, so therefore you should all do this. And then he finishes with this awe-inspiring conclusion. At the end of each letter, Jesus finishes with an offer of eternal blessing to those who uh, hear his words and to those who overcome. To overcome whatever trial or temptation that Jesus has shown them in the letter. And last week we saw an emphasis, uh, we saw how Jesus says, I walk among my church, right? And that was one of our main encouragements, that Jesus is with us. He, he, walk, he, doesn't, just, he doesn't just look at us, 
He walks among us. But we saw, and he saw how Jesus was pleased with the church in Ephesus. They, they had like stood firm in the truth, but they had forgotten their love. They had forgotten the love that they started with. And Jesus says, guys, you need to remember the love you had at first. The truth is good, but the truth without love is nothing. We need to hold the truth, but we also need to love each other and love other people and love Jesus. And this week, the postman reaches Smyrna. Uh, but before we get stuck into our passage, I'm going to pray for us and ask for God's help. Um, so let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, anytime we open the Bible, we need your help. Uh, because we're distracted and we're sinful and we want to bring our own meanings to stuff. And uh, we just want to be humble and say that you're God and we're not. So please help us to understand what you have to say to us this morning. And Lord, would our hearts just be changed and our lives be changed because of what you're speaking, uh, not just to the church in Smyrna, but to this church in Belfast this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in the year... Anytime you start within the year, people go, boring. No, listen to this. In the year uh, AD 197, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, that just means that he's a very influential, uh, very influential Christian in the second century, uh, he made a defense of Christianity to the Roman Empire. Remember, the Roman Empire were persecuting Christians. And this is what he said. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. He said, wherever, or sorry, we multiply wherever we are mowed down. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what he meant was that wherever the church is persecuted, it grows. And we know this to be true. We see this to be true all over the place. I once spent some time in Cuba, about a month or so there, and they still were meeting secretly and each other's homes. They could have their church gathering on a Sunday, but there had to be police outside to make sure it didn't go over time. And then throughout the week, they would have to have secret meetings in each other's homes. Um, and, but one of the amazing things that was happening there was the church was exploding. The church was growing massively. And since the church was born 2,000 years ago, Christians have been going through suffering, right? Persecution, tribulation, imprisonment, even being killed in the name of Jesus. From the days of the apostles and, and for 200 years after that, the first kind of two and 200 years of the church, it was persecuted by the Romans. And during that time, as, and listen, in 200 years, as many as 2 million, 2 million of our brothers and sisters were killed because they said they loved Jesus. But yet during this time, the church grew, didn't it? It exploded. And we knew that from history. It went all across Europe and North Africa and, and Asia. I did it my way. It was probably the other way. Yeah, Europe's over there. Asia's over there to you guys. But this isn't just something that happened in the past. I was reading these stats to, uh, this week. Uh, in the world today, today, one in nine Christians, one in nine are persecuted, experience high levels of persecution because of their faith. Every month, 345 Christians are killed for their faith. That's 11 today. So today, 11 of our brothers and sisters are going to die because they love Jesus. 105, every month, 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked. Uh, 219 Christians are detained without trial every month. You might remember Easter Sunday this year in Sri Lanka, 359 Christians were killed by suicide bombers as they worshiped Jesus on Easter Sunday. In India, 
Hindu nationalists uh, keep continuing to attack Christians, and there doesn't seem to be any repercussions from the government for this. In China, the increased power of the government uh, continues to make uh, open worship more and more difficult, and many of them are being put into prison. And it's not just far afield. We always think that it's really far away, don't we? Uh, In February this year, a street preacher in London was arrested for breach of peace just because he was sharing the gospel of Jesus. Earlier this month in England, a Christian social work student was kicked off his postgrad course because four years ago, he had entered into a Facebook debate about same-sex marriage and had stated a biblical view of homosexuality. And he was kicked off his course. And my point is this, opposition to the gospel is not just something that happened in history and it's not just something that happens really far away. And the church in Smyrna knew all about persecution Uh, Ephesus was the loveless church, and we know that love is a mark of a healthy, vibrant church. Um, But suffering is another mark of a healthy, vibrant church. Opposition, we should expect to face opposition, Jesus says. There are only two churches out of these seven that we're going to study that don't receive any criticism from Jesus. There's Smyrna and Philadelphia, the very last one we'll study. No, that's not true. I'm making that up. Well, it's in chapter three. It's a couple of ones away. Um... But these are the two smallest churches. And I think that's interesting. You see, you don't have to be a massive mega church to be doing well in Jesus' eyes. We saw this last week. Jesus doesn't judge a church by how many bums there are in the seats or how many people are on the membership roll or how many people are in our missional communities. That's not, that's not how Jesus views the church. He, he looks underneath the, surf, the surface. And even though the church in Smyrna was small, and we're gonna see later on why it was so small, Jesus knows that they're doing a good job. Jesus doesn't give them any criticism. He just gives them encouragement. You see, Smyrna is the faithful church. Uh, the city of Smyrna, it's still around today. It is known today as Izmir. It's, it's the third largest city in Turkey. Um, it's a really, really old city. It was founded about 1,000 years before Jesus, so 3,000 years ago, pretty old. Um, and it was known as the first in Asia. But it was also known as the city of resurrection, right? So many years before that, it had been uh, destroyed. But then the emperor, Alexander, had it it rebuilt. He commissioned to have it rebuilt. And so because of that, it was very, very loyal to Rome. Interestingly, it was known as the city of resurrection. Um, And Jesus starts his letter by saying that I am the one who died and came to life, isn't it? I think that's so interesting. Uh, but not only was it really old, it was also very beautiful. So we have, we have a picture of what it would have looked like. This is what it looks like. I, I kind of want to go there. Thomas was admiring the, 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 the city planning of it because he's a planner and is nerdy about those things. But it does look beautiful. Um, and so the architecture was beautiful. Temples, colonnades. It had a group of buildings. I'm not sure where in this picture is. It had a group of buildings. It was called the, the Crown of Smyrna. And these were really, really beautiful buildings. Again, interesting that Jesus... In a city that had a crown, Jesus offers them the crown of life. Jesus knows exactly what to say to his people. Politically, Smyrna had a reputation for being loyal to Rome. And as a reward for her loyalty, Smyrna was given the right to build the very first temple to the emperor Tiberius. Um, And Tiberius was the Caesar whenever Jesus was crucified. And because of this, Smyrna was full of emperor worship. So to be loyal to Rome, you had to worship the emperor. That was how it went. 
So you had to sprinkle incense on. There was a statue of the emperor outside his temple, and there was a fire burning there all the time, and you had to walk past and, and, and put incense on it. That was how you, you paid homage. That was how they kept people loyal. But there was also a large Jewish community in Smyrna, and they had issues with the, the Christians too, right? So the, 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 the Jews thought that the, they, they thought that the Christians were blasphemous. They worshipped this carpenter from Nazareth. Uh, they were rebellious, they were foolish, they really didn't like them at all. They, were, they stood for everything that was against their faith in their eyes. And so when you put all these things together, this place in this time was a really hard place to be a Christian. Really difficult place. And it's, these, it's this context, it's these Christians that Jesus writes this letter. And he starts with his authoritative introduction. So look at verse 8 with me. Is what Jesus says. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel just means that, remember we saw this last week, that's just uh, Jesus saying, to this church I'm writing. The angel is just the representative of the church. In Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus introduces himself as two things, right? He's the eternal God and he's the resurrected Lord. He's the first and the last and he's the one who died and came to life, right? So you can imagine this church I was trying to do this last night. I was trying to imagine this, this small church gathered in somebody's home or maybe they were like this in a rented hall um, or something like that and there's a buzz of excitement going around because they gathered together uh, to, to have their church service to, 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 to read the scriptures and to hear someone preach and to, to pray and take communion. But this day they're gathering, a letter has arrived. and There's a bit of a buzz of excitement. Like, nobody's, no, why isn't, who's, who's writing us a letter? No one ever writes us a letter. I wonder who it's from. I wonder what they want to say. Why should we listen to whoever's writing this? And then they get this introduction. You see, in ancient times, you didn't sign a letter at the end. You signed it at the start. And this is how Jesus stamps his authority. This is how he signs his letter. He says, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who died, and I'm the one who came to life. In the city of resurrection, they're receiving a letter from the eternal God and resurrected Lord. Jesus is the eternal one who guarantees victory for his suffering saints. He's the first and the last, and he's in charge of his church. In the, in the first chapter of, John, uh, of Revelation, uh, we, John gets this vision of Jesus. Uh, and, and in verses 17 and 18 of Revelation chapter 1, if, if you want some homework, take, go home and read Revelation chapter 1. Um, it kind of sets everything in context. Jesus, Jesus gives John this vision of himself. And he, say, he says this, he says, When I saw him, that's when John saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades is another word for hell, or the, the underworld. This is who's writing to them, the one who, who died but came to life. And even in the city that, that came back from the dead, as it were, Jesus, uh, Jesus is the one who lives forever. That city won't live forever. It's an empty resurrection, but Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to know about resurrection, listen to me. In the face of death, listen to me. I am the resurrection. And no doubt, no doubt, some of the church in Smyrna had died for their faith. Suffering for Jesus in their context was just a normal part of being a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, you're being persecuted. Welcome to the club. And in the middle of their suffering, they're being reminded of who Jesus is. This is his kindness to them. He says, remember who you worship, the one who was dead, 
and the one who lives and lives forevermore. The first and the last. And church, it's vitally important that we know who Jesus is. It's vitally important that we keep reminding ourselves who Jesus is. That's why when we started this church nine months ago, we, we, we studied another, another book written by John, John's first letter. And in that book, we're reminded that everything in the world is trying to sell us a counterfeit Jesus, right? Our own, every, everything wants to offer us our own personal savior. Everywhere you look, you see another thing, another experience, another choice that's gonna save your life or, or give you fulfillment or make you live longer or make you happier, make you better looking, whatever it is. But Jesus said, there's only one savior, only I can satisfy Only Jesus can guide us through suffering and opposition, right? And we're going to face opposition. We're going to see that later on. Only Jesus can outlast anything in this world that promises us immortality. Only Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the first and the last, the living one, the one who died and is alive forevermore. Only Jesus has the keys to death and hell. And, and, and John finishes that, le- that letter, his first letter, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You need to remember. Look who the real Jesus is, and you'll remember. You'll know that you have eternal life. And it's only by knowing Jesus that we can have eternal life. We need to know who Jesus is. So, so let's never take our eyes off him. Let's take our eyes off ourselves and, and, and put our eyes on him. And if your eyes haven't been on him for a while, then you need to turn your eyes to him. See him for who he is and take comfort that he's with us and that he is alive forevermore. And this is how Jesus starts his letter. And then he moves on to his evaluation. In verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Strong words, Jesus. <laughs> synagogue of Satan. Jesus starts with these words, I know. I know. Now, sometimes if you're going through something hard, if you're, if you're in pain, you're hurting, sometimes all you need to hear are the words, I know, Right? Sometimes all it takes is a hug and a listening ear and the words, I know. You don't have to fix it. Right, men? That's my mistake in marriage. Like a thousand times. After a couple hundred times, I'm starting to realize that I don't have to try and fix the problem. I just need to understand the problem and be present. Our pain needs to be heard. And this is what Jesus does for his church. Uh, As a 19-year-old, when my dad passed away, um, a friend of mine came into the house and he just came over and wrapped his arms around me and as I sobbed on his shoulder, he just said, I know. And that's all I needed. There's nothing he can do to make that better, but he knew and that was enough. And this is what Jesus does for the church in Smyrna and that's what he does for us as well. Jesus knows what you're going through, right? He knows the suffering you face. He knows all the ways you suffer because you love him. The things that no one else sees, the things that happen even in your own home or in your own relationships, because you love him. Jesus knows those things. He knows about the friends that don't want to talk to you anymore. He knows about, he knows about uh, the spouse that, that rejects your faith as foolishness. He knows about the opposition you face when, when you take a stand in your workplace or in university or wherever it is you go. Whatever ways you're being opposed because of your faith, Jesus knows. 
And in Smyrna, he knew the three things that they were facing. They're facing tribulation and poverty and slander. And the tribulation maybe looked like this. You see, in ancient times, um, each of the trades had a trade guild. So if you're a plasterer, um, you're part of the you're part of the plasterer's trade guild. Or an elect- well, they wouldn't have electricians. That's a silly one. Not electricians. <laughs> if you're a sky repairman in ancient Smyrna, no. If you're a baker or a whatever, leather maker, whatever, uh, you would be part of a trade guild. And each trade guild uh, had a, a, a patron god that you gave paid homage to, and they would protect your skill and your craft. And these trade guilds were how you got work, right? It's a way of saying, this guy, you know like the, the gas men that have to have the, the, the certified gas thing? Don't let anyone work on your gas who isn't certified. It's the same thing. I'm part of this trade guild, so I can be trusted as a tradesman, right? But the Christians, they wouldn't, they wouldn't worship these, these gods because they knew there was only one god. And as a result, they couldn't do business. No one, would, no one would give them work. They were outcasts in that sense. And on top of this, to be a functioning member of the Roman Empire, especially in Smyrna, you had to, you had to worship the emperor, as we've already seen. But the Christians wouldn't do this because they knew there's only one God. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Christians were so persecuted under Rome was because they said, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That's, that's why they got into trouble, because he said, by the way, Caesar, you're not the Lord. There is one Lord, and his name is Jesus. Smyrna was this really wealthy city, and, and not being part of these trade guilds meant that the church suffered financially because of it. The church was enduring actual economic hardship for following Jesus. But notice these four little words in verse 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And then in brackets, but you are rich. He just throws that in there. But you are rich. I know what you're giving up financially to follow me. And even though you might have no money, you're rich. You see, there's a kind of wealth that's far beyond and far more valuable and far outlasts the kind of wealth that that any amount of money and, and luxury can give you in this world. You see, you might be materially poor, but if you're in Jesus, you're rich beyond your wildest dreams. We saw this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that the things, the world treasure, they won't last, right? Everything the world prizes is subject to rust and rot and fluctuating stock markets and varying trends. Political situations, wars, all these things factor the things that the world treasure. And Jesus says, treasure in heaven is going to last forever. There's a kind of wealth you see that the world doesn't even see. They don't even notice it. And it's real wealth. It's lasting wealth. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, it's Mark chapter 10, verse 30, if you're taking notes. Jesus says, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. See, whatever you give up for the sake of knowing Jesus, you've gained far, far more in return. In spite of your affliction, you are rich both now and in the age to come. You see, to know the love of God is to be rich. To inherit the earth to be rich. Like we are actually, do you understand this? We're actually clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks at us right now, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's the wealth that's ours here in Jesus. 
You know whenever a, a young couple get married and they're broke and it doesn't really matter because they're in love? Like me and Haley got married, we were broke and um, someone in their kindness gave us this TV. Um, but it was the kind of TV that it had to sit like two feet out from the wall because it was actually, the, the screen was like this big. Uh, but it was like that deep, you know, it was one of those ones. It wasn't even a widescreen, it was like a square TV. Um, and we set it on our coffee table up against the wall, well, as, you know, kind of in the middle of the room. Uh, <laughs> but, but we didn't care because we were in, we are in love. <laughs> we were in love then, we are even more in love now. <laughs> but the value in being with each other was far more than, than, than any amount of money. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Fanny Crosby. Funny name. Uh, she's this kind of 19th century. She's this incredible woman. She was blind and she wrote all these amazing hymns. And one of the hymns she wrote was, Take the World but Give Me Jesus. And the story goes, and this is from her own diary. She says, uh, she was talking to one of her neighbors who was complaining bitterly about his poverty, saying, If I had wealth, I'd be able to do just what I wish to do. <laughs> How often do we say that? We say, oh, If only I had more money, I could do this. And he said, if I had wealth, I would be able to make an appearance in the world. And Fanny replied, well, take the world, but give me Jesus. See, she knew that real wealth is having Jesus. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end himself. And he's far greater than anything the world has to offer. So when we live sacrificial lives, giving to the poor, helping the needy, caring for each other, feeding the hungry, when we lose out in promotions or business opportunities or job opportunities because we choose to live with integrity for the name of Jesus, we do things the right way, we're actually rich. We're actually rich. But not only uh, tribulation and poverty, they, they were facing slander as well. See, the, the, the Romans saw Christianity as this kind of a sect of, of Judaism so it didn't really, they didn't really mind what gods you worshipped as long as you were worshipping the emperor, okay? So you could worship whatever you wanted. They just said, well, as long as there's peace, so go worship your own gods, but as long as you kind of worship the emperor too, then we're all good. And that was the attitude they had. They just wanted to, to, be peace, uh, to have a peaceful empire. But as the church grew, the Jews got more and more jealous. They hated them because they were blasphemous. And so they would go and tell their own and say, um, by the way, they're... You know these Christians? They're not actually part of us. And uh, they don't worship the emperor. And uh, they worship this guy called Jesus of Nazareth. And they say that Caesar isn't Lord. And this would get the Christians into trouble with the authorities. No doubt this is one of the main sources of their persecution in Smyrna. But notice what Jesus says. He says these are people who say they're Jews, but really not. In other words, these are they're people who appear Jewish outwardly. They hold the Jewish feasts and, and they don't work on the Sabbath and they get circumcised and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, they're happy to go along and worship the emperor. This is the kind of thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2. He says that no one is a Jew merely outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. And so Jesus sees the behavior of these Jews and, and, and he says, you're not really Jews. Now, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. And that's really strong language. And I want to be clear before I say anything else. This is not an excuse for anti-Semitism, okay? 
It's, it, John was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, and the Bible never ever allows us to hate anyone because of their religion, their ethnicity, or their race. This is not an excuse for anti-Semitism. But Jesus is talking about these particular Jews in this particular their context. And most of us recoil a wee bit when we hear this language, a synagogue of Satan, right? And that's good. We shouldn't, just for the record, don't go around telling people that they are a synagogue of Satan. Don't, don't tell anyone that opposes you you're of Satan. That's just a good piece of advice for life. But we do need to recognize that the opposition to the gospel comes from Satan. It comes from the evil one. We have a real enemy who wants nothing more than to see the church of Jesus fail. To see brothers and sisters fall out with each other. To see Christian marriages break up. Ephesians 6 tells us that, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a physical enemy we have. We wrestle against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we need to be aware of that. He wants the church to have a bad, bad reputation. He wants us to be slandered. He wants us to be ostracized. He wants Christians to be seen as irrelevant and foolish and homophobic and on the wrong side of history. And all Jesus is doing here is calling it for what it is. It's interesting that he, he, Jesus calls him a synagogue of Satan because what is Satan? According to the Bible, what is Satan? Satan is the accuser. He's the father of lies. He's the slanderer. And by bringing false accusations against the church, the Jews are in league, are in line with the evil one. That's why he calls him a synagogue of Satan. And we see this all the time. Satan uh, most often works through other people. He doesn't just appear and all that kind of stuff. It's through other people opposing us. And we need to be able to recognize it. But the thing is, we talk about this opposition and persecution. But even though it's getting harder and harder for us here to, to be Christian, it's still pretty easy to be a Christian here, right? If we're honest, it's still pretty easy. Like we're here publicly. Anyone can walk in here. Anyone can. We, we, can, we, can, we are free to believe whatever we want to do and practice whatever we want to practice. There are laws in place that say that I can have any faith I want to. But the thing is, because it's relatively easy to be a Christian... Most of us expect to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus without having to give up anything at all, without any personal cost. But here's the thing. If you are faithful and don't hide your faith, you will face opposition. You might not be put in prison or be beat up, although I do think that, that time's coming, but, but you will be opposed. People are going to think you're weird. You might never make it into that inner circle and work. You might even lose friends and family members. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, he says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and, and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. See, the truth is, if we're faithful to Jesus and take a stand for him, then we're going to face opposition. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a pastor and Christian leader in Nazi Germany, um, he says this, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and therefore it is not surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And so we may very well ask, why do Christians face persecution? But I think the more important question for us in our context to ask is, why do Christians not face persecution? 
Why do we not face persecution? Uh, John Stott, one of, uh, one of Christianity's best teachers, in my opinion, he says this. He says, the ugly truth is that we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or purity of love. The world sees in us nothing to hate. And so if we're not facing opposition for our faith, then maybe we need to ask why. Does the world, the people around you, see anything in you that they would want to oppose? Is your life indistinguishable from everyone else around you who doesn't love Jesus? If you're not facing opposition for your faith, then you need to ask why. But equally this morning, I want to make it clear that if you're facing opposition for your faith in any, in any uh, kind of situation or any quantity or anything like that, then you need to hear that Jesus knows. He sees you. He's with you. And even though you might feel poor, you're rich. And here's what he calls you to do in his appropriate exhortation. Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus says, Do not fear what you're about to, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, for ten, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus doesn't tell them to run. He doesn't tell them to hide their faith. He doesn't tell them to think of ways to get out of the suffering. He doesn't even tell them that he's going to rescue them. In fact, he tells them they're going to suffer more. There's more suffering coming your way. But he tells them to do two things. He says, do not fear and be faithful. Do not fear and be faithful. The English says, uh, don't be afraid or do not fear. But, but actually, the Greek, it's literally like, stop being afraid. It's more of a command. It's like, stop it. Stop being afraid. See, part of the, 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 the sting of suffering is the fear of suffering, isn't it? You know, that, uh, the anticipation of you don't know what's coming. Like, uh, I went to the dentist this week, and, and you're sitting in there, and you can hear the ree in the other room, and you're, like, you get a little bit nervous. It's the fear of the unknown. And Jesus says, yes, there's more suffering to come, but I know. Don't be afraid, I'm with you. Because whatever opposition you face for my sake, it's temporary. Jesus says, he, he says that some of them are going to be thrown in prison and for 10 days they're going to have tribulation. And this 10 days, it's, it's, it may be a literal 10 days or it may be a figurative. of it's a Either way, it's just a temporary short period of time. Earthly suffering is temporary compared to the eternity of life that we have in Jesus. You need to have that, uh, that 10,000 year perspective. Think of your suffering 10,000 years from now. What's that going to look like? A split second. And Jesus says, it's going to be terrible, yes, but it's not going to be endless. And this is why in Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. And by the way, Paul knew what it was to suffer for his faith. Beaten, causing riots, thrown out of cities, left for dead, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, thrown in prison and eventually executed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, suffering in this life, no matter how heavy it feels right now or how long it goes on for, so if it's, a, if, it's, if it's major opposition and persecution that goes on for the rest of your life, it's light. 
and instantaneous compared to the eternal glory that we have ahead of us. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Don't be afraid to let your light shine. Don't be afraid when the world calls you crazy for being a Christian. Don't be afraid when people tell you're a dinosaur for believing what the Bible says about marriage. Don't don't be afraid when your friends tell you you're on the wrong side of history for standing up for the rights of unborn children. Don't be afraid. The, 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 The things that you go through, they're light and momentary compared to the weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. We need to have this eternal perspective. Tony Morita, one of a friend of mine and a teacher of mine, he, he puts it this way. He says, God is sovereign, sovereign over the duration of the suffering. God is working his purposes through the suffering. And God, through Christ, by his spirit, is present with us in the suffering. So you are rich, don't be afraid. No doubt, one of the reasons that the church in Smyrna was small was because some of them had died because of their faith. Whether they died because they couldn't afford to feed themselves or, or whether they died because they were put in prison and then executed. And so you can imagine how it would have hit them when Jesus says, be faithful unto death. Because they could have looked around that room when that letter was being read out in their church gathering and they could have seen the empty chairs and they could have known their friends who were faithful unto death. I think this is why Jesus introduces himself as the one who has overcome death because these are real Christians who are, who are facing death, right? Because in the face of death, they need to be reassured of resurrection. Jesus says, listen guys, people may take your present life, but I guarantee your future life. Correct, we need the correct perspective. The correct perspective of Jesus allows us to overcome And we don't have to be afraid when God is sovereign over our life. We don't have to be afraid when he's with you in suffering. You don't have to be afraid when he is making you more like his son. Because we know that Satan is behind all the suffering, but what Satan intends for, for evil, God means for good. And this is why Jesus tells Smyrna that their faith is being tested. God tests the faith of his people. He's done this. He he tested the faith of Abraham and Moses. He tested the faith of the Israelites in the desert. He even tested the faith of Jesus in the wilderness. And it's the same for us. Sam Storm says, suffering isn't designed by God to destroy our faith, but to intensify it. This is why James, the Bible tells us in James chapter 1 that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why? Because God loves you so much that there are no lengths that he will not go to to make you more like his son. He loves you so much that there are no lengths that he will not go to to make you more like Jesus. And we might not know the details, we might not understand it right now, but we know that we're being more like, made more like Jesus. From The Bible says in Corinthians, from, from one degree of of glory to another, we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so here's the encouragement. Don't fear and be faithful. See, maybe none of us are being thrown in prison or or being beaten up, but persecution and opposition comes in all forms. So maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's people in your family who, who, who hate that you love Jesus, that hate that you're a Christian. They can't understand it and they try to make it difficult for you. They tell you it's a waste of time. 
Or maybe it's your friends, right? They don't understand why you would have certain views on things or they don't understand why you would do certain things or not do certain things or, or say or not say certain things. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, be faithful. This opposition is only temporary. I'm making you more like me. I'm preparing you for an eternal glory. I'm the first and the last. I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. I am the eternal God and the resurrected Lord. So hang in there. Hang in there. And Jesus finishes his letter to this faithful church. And we're nearly done with this awe-inspiring conclusion. Uh, look at, uh, we're going to read the second half of verse 10 and verse 11. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice he says the churches, that includes us by the way. Though to the one, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus promises these suffering saints two things, that they will receive the crown of life and they will not be hurt by the second death. Excuse me. If we're faithful to Jesus until the day we die, then we will receive the crown of life, right? The, the word crown here, it's, it's this Greek word, Stephanos, and, and it's, um, have you ever seen the pictures of the laurel leaves on your head, right? And uh, Stephanie is uh, nodding there because of Stephanos. Yes, that's where your name comes, victory. And it means victory. So this is the crown of leaves that you would get when you won the race in the Olympics. You know, the, you've seen, all seen the pictures. Uh, don't rest in your laurels. That's where that kind of comes from. Uh, but, the, but the crown, the victor's crown, the, the winner's crown that we receive is eternal life. Jesus said it's the crown of life. It's his way of saying eternal life. If we can be faithful, if we can run the race, if we can finish the race, we will receive a crown that's not made of leaves. It's not even made of gold. Our crown is eternal life, true life, full life, real life. Life that we can only imagine right now. Life without end. And this phrase comes up again like it does in all the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. If you, if you can hear me right now, don't ignore it. That's what he's saying, right? You know how you can, you can hear something but not really be listening? Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't ignore this. Take this on board. If you stop being afraid and if you're faithful, you will overcome. The one who conquers that's that, that's that, that the, the word where Nike comes from, victory, Nikaios. It's where Nike. You will be victorious. You will receive this, the Stephanos, the, the victor's crown. And if you overcome, you will not be hurt by the second death. What does he mean? Well, this idea of the second death is mentioned three times in, in the book of Revelation. And every time it is, it's just Jesus re referring to, it's his way of referring to eternal punishment, right? It's eternal death. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's what happens when you enter eternity without Jesus. It's hell. Um, I don't know if you've seen this um, thing on Twitter. There's a Twitter account, it's a daily death reminder. And all it does is like once a day it says, you're going to die someday. Um, you will die someday. That's coming to us all, just so you're aware of that. But if you reject Jesus, there's a second death. There's an eternal death. But if we're in Jesus, if we're faithful to him, then we won't be hurt by the second death. You will overcome the second death. This is the promise of the gospel. Jesus died so we don't have to. Jesus died and he was buried and three days later when that stone was rolled away and he walked out of that tomb, he proved that death has been defeated forever. And by trusting in him, death is defeated for you too. You see, we conquer death because Christ has conquered death. 
Uh, I want to finish by sharing a story of um, a guy called Polycarp. I don't know if you've ever heard of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp um, was uh, a disciple of John. So he uh, was in this church probably when this letter was written by John. He was one of John's disciples, and he went on to become the pastor of the church in Smyrna. He was known as the Bishop of Smyrna. Um, he would have known the people that this letter was written to. Um, uh, he probably was a young man at the time. Um, because 60 years later, when he was 86, uh, the authorities came to arrest him and take him away to be executed. So the, the persecution that Jesus says, I know that there's more coming. You're about to suffer. Those words of Jesus came true. The, the persecution intensified. And the authorities came to, to take Polycarp away and to execute him and for hours and hours and hours they tried to convince him to to curse Jesus to recant his faith Uh, and one guy said to him swear by the fortune of Caesar change your mind take an oath and I shall release you curse Christ and this is what he said and and uh, I want to I want to be like this he said 80 and six years I have served him and he never did me any wrong How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they couldn't change his mind. And he was faithful to the point of death because eventually they burned him at the stake. And they were about to nail his hands onto the stake to be burnt. And he said, I don't need any nails. I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. And just before they lit the fire, he looked up to heaven and he prayed. And this is what he says in his prayer. He said, Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed servant Jesus, through whom we have all received full knowledge of thee. I love how he's about to die, but he's kind of preaching to them through his prayer as well. I love that. Hang in there, Polycarp. The God of angels and powers and all creation, of the whole race of the righteous who live in thy presence, I bless thee because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and are to take my part in the number of martyrs in the cup of Christ for resurrection to eternal life of soul and body in the immortality of the Holy Spirit, among whom may I be received in thy presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, just as, though, just as thou hast prepared and revealed beforehand and fulfilled. Thou art the true God without any falsehood. For this and for everything I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee, through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved servant, through whom be glory to thee and him, with him and Holy Spirit, both now and to the ages to come. Amen. He wasn't afraid. He was faithful to death. And then they lit the fire and he died. Uh, he, he trusted Jesus. He trusted that Jesus was the first and the last. He knew that Jesus was the living one. He was the one who was dead and the one who is alive forevermore. He, was, he knew that Jesus is the one who has the keys to death and hell. And he said, well, you can, you can actually, they actually said, hey, we're going to burn you. And he was like, well, what are you going to do with my body? He's like, I'd far rather face this fire than face, that'll be over in a minute, than, than face the fires of hell that'll last for eternity. He was faithful. He didn't fear and he was faithful. Uh, and whatever persecution and opposition that we face, Because let's be honest, really, for us, it's not that bad compared to our friends in Turkey or our brothers and sisters in India or China. Whatever opposition we face, let's, let's not be afraid. Let's be faithful to the end. Let me pray for us.